<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following episode of NordPod contains explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of rare disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary and welcome to NordPod right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back and welcome all new subscribers to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, April Lane is a mother of five and rare disease and infertility advocate, and you do not want to mess with her. She and her husband, Brian, tried to have a baby on their own for four and a half years until they were diagnosed with unexplained infertility. Endless cycles and tens of thousands of dollars later, they're now proud parents of five beautiful children, one of whom, Mark, was born with a rare genetic condition. So join us as we examine what it means to be your own advocate, along with the challenges families face with fertility while raising a child with a rare disease. Enjoy the show. My name's April Lane, and I work for UCB, which is a supporter of NORD. Today, I am speaking on behalf of myself as a rare advocate. UCB is not a sponsor for this episode. April Lane, welcome to NordPod. You've got no shits to give. Explain. (laughs) We're thrilled to have you. You got a great story. You got a lot to talk about. And... You know, and, and just going over the basics of what I'm reading about you without talking to you right now, you are the definition of advocate. I remember when I was asked to be an advocate when I was like 22, I'm like, what the hell is an advocate? And like, did you go through that? No one asks to wake up one day and be an advocate. No, you're totally right. No one asks to be an advocate. And I think it's a combination of personality style and life experience that gets you there. And sometimes it's personal life experience, sometimes it's professional life experience, but you're right. No one is born an advocate. It's something you grow into. So talk us through when that rabbit hole opened up and what bad thing happened to a good person that threw you down it. So I was always a little bit of an advocate in the sense that before all of the movements became popular and I was a, a, a big f- female advocate, I 
wrestled in high school on the male wrestling team because a boy said girls could not do it. And I wanted to prove him wrong. I played baseball when our town developed a softball team. I refused to transition over to softball because they're two different sports and there was no female baseball team and softball is a much different sport. So I always had that personality to stand up for myself and what I believe is right. But as far as a situation or a life experience that brought me into an advocacy voice, it would be my husband and I's journey to parenthood. It took us a very long time to build our family. Our path to parenthood was not easy. We were diagnosed with unexplained infertility shortly after we were married. It took us nine and a half years to build our family. And so it was a long process for us. And through that process, I didn't really have a support group. And so I started reaching out to, I'm going way back to like chat rooms. Uh, I started- I feel you. AOL CDs, (laughs) littering the hallways of our lives, AOL CDs. Go ahead. Right? Uh, So I, I found support on these underground fertility chat rooms and everyone has screen names and- the one particular chat room I was in, you would go into a room that was based on where you were in your fertility treatment journey. So it would be like first IUI, third IVF. And I went through these rooms and progressed. I was literally in a group called eighth, ninth, 10th IVF. And there were four or five of us who started in the very beginning of the diagnostic journey and ended up in that group together. And we were even burnt out on the support in there. We were like, screw this. You know, all these people are getting pregnant and we're still here. So we created our own little support group. We started on email. And then when we got too big for email, you went to CompuServe. I, (laughs) I went to private Facebook page. Um, And that group still stands. There's over 280 women nationwide in that group. But those women were the reason why I started my advocacy journey. I started hearing of couples selling their cars, selling their homes, taking out loans, selling their wedding rings because they didn't have medical coverage for their fertility treatments for a recognized by the World Health Organization diagnosis, they could not get medical treatment. And that really was what the catalyst was for my advocacy journey. So I want to give you context about my experience with infertility. Granted, it wasn't uh, congenital as yours was with your husband's. Mine was induced because I had cancer treatment in my fertilities or my 20s. And they told me you'd never have kids. Prepare to never be a biological dad good luck, enjoy yourself. Like that's kind of, they threw you out the bathwater in the 1990s. And it was only until I found other people like me, there's such a common thread here, who had been diagnosed infertile from cancer and somehow had kids, but went through all these incredible, like extremely expensive mortgage your house, do a HELOC, like take out a loan. You shouldn't have to pay I mean, I'd like to think you shouldn't have to pay to be a biological parent, at least you know anywhere. It's, it seems to be the right thing a country should support you to do, because then you make Gerber very wealthy and a college one day very wealthy. 
I went through the same IVF and the IUI and the X season. I have twins. So we have incredible common threads and probably war stories that we can impart down to the listeners. It's such a good point that you bring up common thread. People connect with conversations and stories. And so when you have those real world conversations of I went through this, you're going through that, that's how you connect. And that's how people start to build communities. Are your twins fraternal or identical? They are fraternal. Are they same sex? Same sex, girl, girl. All right. All right. Because I have a boy and a girl and I still get asked if they're identical. <laughs> I actually talked to someone about that in the elevator of uh, a mall this weekend. I went school shopping and she has boy, girl, twins. And people ask her all the time if they're identical. Except for the gonads, they were identical. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Different that. chromosomes. I love <laughs> I love that you had kind of like this congenital moxie. You were already a, a precocious individual that seemed to have a disdain for authority and, and didn't want things to be the way they should maybe just be told to be. That came in seemingly very handy. But where in your marriage did you first start to realize that the system wasn't going to help you on its own? You had to really take up arms. It was right away. It was it was very quickly when the OBGYN was trying to make treatment decisions and next steps based on insurance dictated guidelines that didn't make sense medically to me. Um, so it was very quickly I recognized that I needed to be my own advocate and start documenting my path to parenthood on my own because it was going to be a fight. Were you employed at the time? I was. And to the credit of my employer, we had fairly decent fertility coverage and a little bit of adoption coverage, um, but they were exceptional to helping me navigate the process and how to maximize every penny that was offered to me. They were, they were awesome. But even still, you had to go through all sorts of crazy crap. Yeah, so I had I had dual insurance in the state of Massachusetts. You can have secondary insurance. I'm actually not sure if that applies to this day, but you know, a decade and a half ago that applied. So I had dual insurance coverages and still with the two insurances covering me plus the $25,000 from my employer, we still spent $81,000 out of pocket. I think that's important though because people don't I mean, why would they know if they're not looking for it or need it? How much does it cost to do even one IUI cycle? I mean, for me, the twins was 15 grand just for the first attempt. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, IVF's average cost is about 20 grand. And, and here, I'm in Massachusetts where we're in academia central. That's the very low end. You know, where Massachusetts, you're looking at 25, 30 grand a pop. So I want to ask you a question again, common threads here. Oftentimes, and this just speaks to just poor bedside manner to say the least, mm -hmm. but you're alive. Isn't that enough? Oh. Go adopt. Just to, just go adopt. Right. right. Did you get because, that? Because that's free and emotionally yeah. painless. <laughs> One thing that, again, I give benefit of the doubt to people who wouldn't know this and we're not scolding you for not knowing this, but- the adoption process takes into account your personal health history. So why you have to disclose that to potential people that want to 
you know, give me their their baby. They're not going to want to give their baby to someone who beat cancer, is living with a rare disease. Like, there's a lot going on in that process in general. Whether you are a candidate or not, they tear you apart like you're taking out seven loans. Yeah, it was a really emotionally draining process because I had the part of me that felt like as a female, I was failing my husband, what I'm supposed to do as a woman and reproduce and be a mom. I felt like I was failing in that aspect. And then we're filling out all this paperwork and I have to share all my flaws and someone's checking out my house and, right. you know, you know, you need to put a gate at the top of the stairs. Well, no kidding, but there's no kids here. Why do I need a gate? Right. It's it's a frustrating and emotionally draining process. It's So Harvard actually conducted a study looking at chronic illness and depression. And I forget off the top of my head how many illnesses they look at looked at, but it was a it was a handful, um, several dozen, and tied for the most depressed patient population were those diagnosed with cancer and those diagnosed with infertility. I mean, it's just a violation of your personal identity as a human being sometimes, and it really rips you apart from a dignity perspective. It does. I mean, it's the American dream, right? To have a family and build a family. And when it doesn't happen the way you expect it to, it's, it's, it really, it, it can destroy you. So again, another open-ended question, because there's a Supreme Court ruling about the right to parenthood. I'm not sure you're familiar with that. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because is biological parenthood an American civil liberty or a human right? Ooh, you're going deep, man. Super deep. I've been doing this for 15, 16 <laughs> years. I'm telling you, when they told me you were going to be on the show, I'm like, yes, yes, I'm so excited to talk to someone else about this. <laughs> I mean, can it be both? It should be both. I mean, it's, it's nice to think it should be, right? Yeah. And, and And the fact that you'd have to argue that it's one or the other doesn't seem right. So I, I work with a nonprofit called Resolve. And they're one of the largest institutional fertility policy groups. They're the ones that force Fortune 5000 companies to change their benefits to include cancer preservation and uh, congenital preservation. And they're, they're wonderful in what they do, but they are so desperate for these stronger stories to force other companies to guarantee these protections. But even if they're there, like in your case, you can still go broke. And that's just not okay. Yeah, no, it's not okay. And a lot of the financial assistance and grant programs out there look at your means. And even the wealthy don't have that kind of cash just sitting around. You know, the money that we put into our family building, we bought a starter home knowing we would have to dump money into it. We needed to renovate and update and you know, the HVAC had to be replaced, which is tens of thousands of dollars. All of that money that we had saved for the house went to family building. So we're going to take a break and come right back after this. Back with our guest. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. After the break. So April, this is NordPod, the voice of rare disease. And we have to know what is your connection to rare disease? So I'm a rare mom. Uh, my second born son, Mark, who's eight years old, was diagnosed with an ultra rare disease. He has a genetic mutation known as a CHD2 mutation. He's the third documented case in the world. He was diagnosed at three years old, so a little over five years ago. We, we still don't know if there's any more cases after him. And how was that discovered? What, what early behaviors was he not demonstrating? He, uh, intellectually, there were no delays or disabilities. He started showing signs of something going on with his eyes, is what we could see. He would squeeze them tight. Uh, blink them a lot. And at first I thought it was a vision problem. So we saw a vision specialist at a large um, academic center here in Boston, Children's Hospital here in Boston. And we did this four hour test where they did flashing lights and iPad usage. And they found that his vision was perfectly fine. And this wasn't an eye issue. And they suggested we go see neurology. When we got to neurology, which, which was just a few weeks after we first started seeing the eye blinking, it had transformed and progressed to a eye flutter where his head would drop back and sometimes his chin would fall. He would talk through it. He would function through it. Uh, but he was doing it hundreds of times a day. So getting diagnosed with something that you're only the second person in the world to have, how long did that take? Like who was the miracle diagnostician genomicist that discovered this yeah so he's the third third um, the other two cases were international or are international patients they presented very differently than mark they had major intellectual disabilities they had very severe seizure disorders they had uh, motor function disabilities and mark had had none of that. So he was diagnosed at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. The, the neurogenetics team there was absolutely incredible. 
They figured it out pretty quickly uh, through a blood panel. We did end up leaving there, though. We felt like we needed less of those big brains and research brains and more of a personalized care Mm -hmm. um, for for Mark. So we, we switched over to a neurologist over at Tufts who's been absolutely incredible with him. In terms of an outlook for Mark's life, is there any remote established precedent with these other two cases or is it really just as you go? I would say prognosis for ultra rare disease is probably one of the most difficult unknowns. We just don't know. We don't know. Could he grow out of this? Probably not. But in cases that have similar seizure disorders without the genetic part of it, sometimes they grow out of it. But because he has the genetic base, maybe he won't. Will he be able to drive? If he was to go for his license today as an eight-year-old, no. He is not neurologically stable enough to be behind a wheel. A wheel. Um, his, his seizures are photosensitive. He's always in a hat and sunglasses because any change of light will trigger a seizure for him. Wow. So, like, there's no Hallmark card you could buy to say, we're sorry you're dealing with this. No. It's very touch and go. Obviously, again, loaded question. Your embedded moxie that got you into, you know, fertility advocacy, I'm sure, has equally come in very handy to be a rare mom. What has that new universe been for you? It actually has been incredible because I have this little human that is depending on me. It isn't just about my personal life and my personal goals. It's about him and getting him the best treatment, making sure he's socially accepted, making sure his peers understand differences Um, And it's okay to be different. And for me, it's important that he can be his own self-advocate. We, my husband and I have really tried to instill in all our kids, especially Mark, that he is a voice and voices can be the change and he has to be the voice. And so I, I, I would say it's more empowering when you have someone depending on you to lead the way. Very powerful stuff, truly. Before the show, we had talked about how you miss the marble floors of DC (laughs) as a lobbyist. You know, talk to us about what you have done. So uh, you speak of resolve. I have gone for over a decade to Capitol Hill to speak to legislators on family building legislation that is on the table. I've done it for many, many years, and it's an incredibly empowering process. The marble floors, you better not have high heels on. That's a rookie mistake. You need to have like nice flats because you will walk for eight to 10 hours and go office to office to speak to Congress about legislation that is important to your community. Um, I think everyone should do it if they have the chance to do it at some point in their life. It's awesome. So now you're a rare mom, you're a fertility advocate mom. What types of policies do exist with NORD that you can take an active role with to advance awareness of and potential research for this and other conditions as rare as it is? So NORD is a powerhouse in the policy space. They really 
take policy to the next the next level. Uh, an example of that is in North Carolina in 2016, they created legislation that would put rare disease advisory councils in the faces of government officials. And these councils are made up of patients, caregivers, healthcare providers in the rare disease space, and they get to give input and insights on legislation that matters to that community. That is whoever started that within Nord, you know, should be president. It is, <laughs> it's an, inc- it's an incredible program that they put together. And I forget the number now, but I think it's, it's in place in 2021 20, states now. Um, that is such an incredible resource for the rare disease community. They also have a lot of support um, and voice and fair pricing and rare disease fair pricing for treatments is, I don't know what the word is that I, it's kind of disgusting in, in mm. some cases. We'll just go it, with disgusting. Yeah, I, I, that's probably not the uh, professional term I should use. <laughs> but, you know, for, for some of these rare disease drugs, it does cost billions of billions of dollars to discover these drugs. So they are going to be high priced, but some of them are just out of reach. And some molecules are these old repurposed molecules. They've been around for decades that, you know, a brainiac at Mass General realized, wait a second, this could work on the same channel as this disease. I'm going to try this. And then it's rebranded, remarketed at a ridiculous price like that. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. It's like how Chevy and Buick and Cadillac are the same freaking car but they just make the Cadillac more expensive and it's the exact same car as the Chevy model. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I want to close out on something very familiar to me personally, which is judgment and stigma from society. Another avenue that I played a very active role in as a cancer advocate is discrimination in the workforce yeah. where employers can't know you had cancer, but sometimes you have to tell them and then you can get fired for, you know, reasons they kind of make up, even though it's illegal to fire you for having cancer. But this whole notion of, you know, I I was diagnosed at a time where cancer was contagious, right, in the public, and you were judged and stigmatized for being bald. And and now it's kind of, I would say, less uh, of a stigma. But in rare disease, especially in pediatric rare disease, it's the worst. And especially when you're of an age where it's horrible enough (laughs) in middle school and whatnot or grade school. Can you just briefly share uh, the story that Mark had to go through, uh, through his soccer league. So it was a really unfortunate situation that honestly you hear of situations like this all the time. And, you know, you think about it, you relate to it, you empathize with it. But when it actually happened to us, I was mind blown that people still thought the way this soccer facility did and treated people the way they treated us. So Mark loves soccer. He absolutely loves soccer uh, and baseball. Now I think baseball might be trumping soccer in our house, but he's an athlete. He loves sports. He might not be the best athlete out there, but he gives 150% every time he's out there. He joined an indoor soccer team that played at a facility, a few zip codes over, um, not in our not in our town. 
And but because of COVID and the restrictions of spectators, we had to pay for a subscription and watch him on a app, a live app that was terrible. It was choppy. The camera was like 50 yards aerial view. So I would put Miles and Mark in like bright yellow socks or a headband or something so I could identify who they were because you you couldn't tell. It was just a bunch of bodies on a soccer field. But there were no spectators allowed. And there were a couple times where I noticed on the camera, Mark wasn't moving. And he always gives, he's a hustler. And we actually say balls to the wall. Like you go balls to the wall the whole time. And that's what they call it. I'm going balls to the wall, mom. And he wasn't moving. And I knew that meant he was seizing. I couldn't get a hold of the coach. My husband's trying to get inside. He's, you know, banging on the doors. He's texting. We're calling. It happened twice. And both times that it happened, it triggered a cascade of uncontrolled seizures for weeks. Wow. So when we lose seizure control like that, we don't regain control for several days to weeks. Uh, one time it was three weeks because of soccer. Another time it was you know two, two to three weeks. We reached out to the facility to see if they could accommodate. We didn't bring up any of the laws that protect us. We were just asking as parents, could you accommodate having a parent within the facility? They'll stay back. They'll stay masked. They won't interact with anyone just to monitor his symptoms. And they said no. That's just fabulous. And it <laughs> said gets no worse. one ever. My God. Terrible. It gets worse. Oh, oh wait, so wait, wait, wait. It gets worse. Did, Keep going. It, yes. So not only did they say no, they in email documented that the coach of the team knowingly took on a disabled child and they can remove them from the team if they would like. Jesus Christ, that's terrible. Right? That's not okay at all. It's not okay. That's our that's our band name. We are the It's Not Okay. And Stay it's for the disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> terrible, terrible. So like so you took action and this is probably in, in no way a unique situation for other parents with young children facing rare conditions. What's a precedent? Is is there an establishment like you pursued an action? that hopefully will wind up yielding the results that are deserved? So in the days of social media, the first thing I turned to was a hashtag. I created a hashtag, I stand with Mark. And I started sharing the story of what happened. And it got a lot of well-known athletic support. Uh, you said athletic support. Not a cup. <laughs> <laughs> we received videos of support from Tom Brady, Pat Chung, uh, Gordy Gronk, police departments, collegiate soccer teams, professional soccer teams, ESPN, uh, Jeremy Violo. Um, he is a former professional soccer player. A lot of people know him for marrying one of the Duggar children. He found out about Mark's story and reached out to all these professional teams and sent me a video montage of dozens of current players, coaches, sending words of support. It was incredible. So I started there and 
I also worked with the Epilepsy Foundation of New England. They have a policy lead that could help me navigate policy currently in place that protected Mark. We tried approaching the facility with the laws, the ADA protections. They didn't care. So then we turned to the Disability Law Center in Boston and worked with them. You were already in beast mode before this thing started. So if there's like a beast mode squared, you have like no f**ks to give. And you went, you went your own balls to the wall in this process. And kudos for you for showing that it's never okay to do this. And getting luminaries in the sports world to sign on, that's extraordinary. Oh, it was so awesome. It was so awesome. We received a local real estate company publicly gave out their address, Esposito Realty, so people could send letters of support. We received letters from kids. We received cards. We received stickers, soccer balls. Ryan Allen, who's the former punter for the New England Patriots, sent him cleats and a, a jersey from the Portland. He now lives in Portland, Oregon, from the Portland team. Like Just so much support. And Mark didn't even really know why. He knew that his epilepsy was preventing him for, from returning to the turf, but he didn't know that it was discrimination that was preventing him from returning. So this was super exciting to him. Like all these people want me to be a good soccer player and they stand with me. And he was just so proud of being supported. And we're proud of you and proud of him. You know, every Billy Joel concert ends with him saying the same thing. Don't take any shit from anyone. And I can't think of a stronger poster child for that than you on so many different fronts. And I, I, I like we have to have you back on this show because this we could we could talk for hours about just this <laughs> this fierceness that you have inside your bones. Oh, thank you. I, I said this, you know, before we started recording, I said this to you, but I've lived enough life to not have two shits to give anymore. And I know what is right and what is wrong. And it is okay to stand up for what is right and stand up to what is wrong. Couldn't have said it better myself. April Lane, mother of five, rare disease advocate. Don't piss her off. Thanks for coming on NordPod. <laughs> Thanks so much. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org.
one, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.